Hi, I'm April Tatro, and I played Isis the Cat on the first generation of Star Trek, and I'm here today on Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week's guest on the show is easily one of the most unique guests I've ever had on this podcast. Quite possibly the most unique one ever I've interviewed, period, I think. And that's saying a lot, because I've talked to some pretty unique guests out there who've had some very interesting professions that have somehow linked into the world of Star Trek. But never have I ever interviewed somebody who was a contortionist. And April Tatro completely gets that mark, because April is a contortionist and a dancer, and one of the world's most famous flexible people out there. April's Star Trek connection comes to us through the original series Season 2 finale, Assignment Earth. Yeah, that's the episode that was meant to be a backdoor pilot to a completely different show that never got off the ground, and there's quite a story around that one. And just to make sure you're not confusing who the characters are, no, she's not the person who Terry Gar was, because, well, that person was played by Terry Gar. April was, in fact, the humanoid version of Isis the Cat. And her appearance was actually uncredited on the original series, as we're going to learn today. It was a very brief scene that happens at the very end of the episode of Simon Earth, but it's a pretty big one, and it left quite a mark on a lot of people. But the one thing it didn't leave was the name in the credits. And as we're going to learn today, it was thanks to Larry Nemechek, a former guest of this show, that we eventually found out it was April who played that very, very interesting cat person. But Star Trek was just a little tiny piece of April's career, and it really goes far beyond that. Because her dancing and flexibility brought her to Vegas to do various talk shows to show off her contortion skills and appearances in a lot of other shows and movies that we're going to talk about today. April is one of those truly fascinating guests because her stories are so vastly different from everybody else we've talked to because her career path was so incredibly different than anybody else we've talked to. So I can now check off talking to the world's most famous frontbender from my bucket list of things to do on this podcast. And I think that's a pretty cool thing to check off. So I hope you'll enjoy this very interesting, very surprising, very fun interview with April Tatro. And by the way, just a quick warning also before we get into things here, I do want to mention that April had a little bit of problems with her web camera. So for anybody who's out there watching the video version of this podcast today, you're going to see that it's very much out of focus. And there was nothing we could do about it. We spent quite some time trying to troubleshoot it and getting it to work. Couldn't quite figure it out. So we just made the decision to just kind of go with it as it is. So unfortunately, she's going to look a little bit fuzzy, but I hope it's not too big of a deal for you guys out there because there's still so much great content, so much interesting stories from her that I don't think it's really going to take away anything from this episode other than maybe making your eyes a little bit fuzzy. But before we start talking to this week's guest, I want to remind you guys to make sure you are following Trek Untold on all forms of social media. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Trek Untold, and that's one word, Trek Untold, no spaces in between. That's the best way to stay up to date on who our guests are for the week, learn all about them before the show begins, and check out all the random memes I post, because yeah, I do a lot of that too. If you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon member. Head over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to see all the different ways you can help financially at different contribution levels. Some of the perks include early access to the episodes, having the chance to ask guests questions, and hopefully some more stuff I'm going to figure out pretty soon. It is easily the best way to directly connect with me, as well as to meet other fans of this show. If you're looking to buy some Trek Untold merchandise, don't worry, that's going to be coming very soon. If you prefer to check out the video version of this podcast, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where every Sunday I post these episodes in video format, which includes a lot of images and video from the guests that we're talking to. 
But the most important thing you can do to help support this show is please leave us ratings and reviews if you're checking us out on iTunes, on Spotify, or other audio platforms that allow you to leave reviews and ratings, or by subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as giving our Trek Untold videos thumbs up, likes, and comments. All these interactions help push our podcast to the very top of these different platforms to make sure more Star Trek fans can find us. It costs you nothing to do other than a few moments of your time, so please, if you haven't done that already, consider doing so. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining me on the other side of the screen, she is the country's most famous frontbender. She is the human pretzel. We are joined today by a person who I hope isn't too salty, Miss April Tatro. April, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us here. We got a lot to talk about. And you are a, a certainly a one-of-a-kind guest here, because I can't say I've ever talked to any contortionists on this show before. So I have a lot of questions. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> So, yeah, normally I, I like to start this podcast with what your earliest memory of Star Trek was, but you were on the original series, so we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So uh, I want to start with the secret origin story of April. So uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up, who your parents were, and what little April wanted to be when she grew up. Okay, I was um, born in Astoria, Oregon. My parents moved to uh, Escondido when I was, uh, San Diego actually, when I was three. When I was nine, they moved me to Escondido, and um, I had very large feet and a small body. My feet grew faster than my body did, so my mother decided to put me in ballet. And she found a teacher um, that was uh, had been one of the Goldwyn girls with in movies, you know, way back when. And she saw I had a natural ability. So she gave me, I took tap, ballet, jazz, all that. And she saw that I had a natural ability. And so she um, gave me free acrobatic lessons. So I became an acrobatic dancer. And then she saw that I had uh, limberness. So she, this dance school was in a church. And there were bats actual bats in the belfry we could hear them but she the church had you know how the church have an altar it's a step up yep and so there was a step up so she put a mat down on the ground and then she'd turn me on my side and she'd stretch me so each time she's behind the head so each time she'd stretch me she'd pull my leg further 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 until it would come over and then further 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 down so it finally was called an oversplit, where she would stretch me further each time. I mean, she just said I was very limber. She never used the, the word contortionist. She called me an acrobat, basically. I don't know what that was. Anyway, she called me an acrobat. And so I did acrobatic dancing. And I at a very young age, nine years of age, I think I was, I decided I wanted to become a professional dancer. So instead of going over to the Coke stand and having Cokes after school and all that and hanging out with the gang all through high school, I went to the studio and I practiced and worked out. And so when I was right out of high school at 18, oh, and during high school, I found an agent. And from the age of 16, I got paid to perform at Light Camp Pendleton or an Elks Club or 
there was a salary involved and I got paid to do that. So I guess I you could say I became semi-professional when I was like 16. But then when I was 18, my mother drove me up to L.A. She saw the, the teacher, Georgia Copeland was her name. She saw that uh, an article in Variety that George Morrow, George Morrow Dancers, was looking for a specialty dancer. And so my mother and Georgia drove me up to L.A., and I auditioned for George Morrow, and I got the job. So um, it was my, my dad and my mother had a big argument when I got home, when we got home, because my dad said, you're sending our own child to across the country, and how could you do that? I'd never been away from home. I'd never been to camp or anything. I'd never been on a plane. And all I knew were, you know, Escondido. And so my dad bought the ticket. I got on the plane. That's a whole other story. The plane got lost in a, air, a, a snowstorm. And I had to get on the bus. And I found Austin. And we went into rehearsals. And I roomed with three other girls. And they were from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, so I met people, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because I didn't, we lived in a rooming house. There was no stove or anything. And so I worked with George Morrow dancers for quite a while. Well, for a couple months, I guess. And I was the lead dancer. And I came out and I did a routine and we were a warm-up act for Milton Berle. Milton Berle was the star of the show. So that's really basically how I got started as a dancer. It wasn't until I worked in Las Vegas where the girls in Las Vegas would say, April, do something funny. I was like a dancer at the Sands Hotel. I was a Copa girl. We worked with um, the Rat Pack, Dean Martin, you know, the whole group. Anyway, so... Um, the girls backstage would say, oh, you're you're funny, 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 you know, ha, ha, ha. Well, after Las Vegas, I went to Miami, I went to Montreal, I worked for different producers. But I was always extremely limber, and they would tell me to hold my leg down rather than kick it higher. They would always say, April, leg down, lower, lower, you know, stay with the other girls. And um, I finally got tired of that, and I decided to come home back to Escondido, and I worked up a little act doing contortion and um, did tra did. some of your listeners are probably, I don't know how old, but anyway, there was a guy by the name of Jack LaLanne who did exercises on TV, Yep. and I'd been on his show. He had me on his show one time. So I worked up a whole act where the... Um, the uh, comedian at Disneyland, I also was a can-can dancer at Disneyland for two years at the Golden Horseshoe Review. And he saw me stretching backstage, and he said, you know what, you're a contortionist. And I said, what? He said, you're a contortionist. He said, so I'm going to work up this act. And he said, I'm going to be Jack LaLanne, and you're going to be the woman with the rollers and the hairnet in her hair trying to follow the TV, and I'm going to say, you know, okay, ladies, higher, higher at the leg. And he said, then you get the leg caught behind the neck, and then you, oh, my gosh, and then you try to get out of it. And he said, we're going to have a comedy routine. So Wally Bogue and I did that um, for 
the whole two years I worked at Disneyland, I did the can-can during the day with the kicks and all that. And at night, I worked with Wally at Club Dates. And um, so when I was ready to leave Disneyland and go to Vegas, he put it, the routine on a tape for me. Because I figured one day I'm not going to want to work with everybody. I'm going to want to specialize. So that's how I had the tape, and that's how I ended up doing when I finished with all the shows. And, you know, I got tired of that. I wanted to go back to college, actually. Yeah, so I got to ask, I mean, you're doing so many different things here. I feel like we just glossed over the fact that you're hanging out with the Rat Pack or working for the Rat Pack and Milton Berle. And this is basically your introduction to the world of entertainment. Now, this is a pretty big cry from where you were from. So, I mean, you got to have some big stories here. I mean, I'd love to hear if you have any memories of Milton or the Rat Pack. I mean, did you have any, did you get to cross over much and and interact with these folks? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I did. Uh, Milton Berle was, um, he always wanted the attention. And I don't blame him. He was the, the star. The Rat Pack, Sammy Davis, was wonderful, sweet man, very sweet man. He had a party one night, and he invited us all up to the party. And one of the girls was tall, really tall, and she spilled some punch or something all over her white pants. He said, just go into my closet, pick out a pair of pants, and put them on. So she came out with his pants on, and they, she was tall. And they came up to, like, her knees. I mean, it was, that was, but he was a very nice, sweet man. And Dean Martin was uh, a, like a teddy bear. He was lovely. I, I liked him a lot. They they would choose certain girls out of the uh, Sands, the Copa girls, and they'd invite a few of us each night to go out to dinner. So I was one of the girls that was very, very, was chosen to go out to dinner with them. So, yeah, um. A lot of stories, a lot of experiences, um, a lot of that. There's so many that we run out of time. <laughs> I mean, any chance I get to have talked to somebody who's been around Milton Berle, I'm, I'm always curious to hear about, and especially not not just because of the the rumors. I'm sure you've heard about him as well, but uh, yeah, I won't touch that one. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. No, I don't want to say anything negative about anybody. And um, he was. I mean, I didn't know him. I only worked. I was. The lead dancer, he didn't really want much to do with the dancers. As I said, he was kind of, it was, the light had to be just right, you know. And when we were on stage with him, he said, no light on the girls, no light on the girls, light on me, you know. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's my memories of Milton Berle. And when I was growing up, he was Uncle Milty, because I used to love him. I watched his shows all the time, so it was quite interesting. That I was able to um, to work with him. Yeah, after, absolutely. After I had been such a fan, when you work with someone, you just get to know them much better. Right. Yeah. So we're we're back now to you've come home and you want to pursue a college education. So what are you thinking about? I mean, you're going from dancing and starting to learn about acrobatics, that thing as professional. Now you want to go to college. So what are you looking towards as a profession? Um. Well, I I oh I wanted to um. I wanted to teach children who were blind dance, and um, that was my main goal. But then I was there, and then um, a couple of my girlfriends from Vegas had moved had moved to Los Angeles, and they said, "April, you need to come up to Los Angeles because this is where all the action is." And so 
I moved in with two of the girls that I roomed with in Vegas. And um, I came up to L.A. I registered. I went to um, Los Angeles Valley College, and I took acting in pantomime. And I went to school at night up here, and I um, did um, extra work uh, during the day. I didn't like the extra work because it was really, really boring. Yeah. And I got an agent. I got my agent, Coralie Jr. She spe she was uh, for specialty acts. And I couldn't get into Screen Actors Guild unless I had a job. And I couldn't get a job unless I was a member of Screen Actors Guild. So actually how I got in, Coralie got me in as a contortionist because there were no other contortionists in L.A. And so at that time, I mean, that at that time, I didn't realize it. I, you know, I was still in my 20s, and I didn't realize that I had um, this unique ability. I knew I could kick high and get my leg. You know, I knew I could do that. and But I wasn't aware of the fact that I was the only one. And so in Europe, they had, like, way back when, I found out later that I had a fan club. I had no idea. And so through Corley, I got on Johnny Carson. I got on, um, I was on Johnny Carson like six or seven times. They got so that they would just, I didn't have to audition, which was fabulous. Because they said, we need a contortion safe, but go to April. You know, she could do it. And so I got into Screen Actors Guild. And through Screen Actors Guild, I got into AFTRA. The Union AFTRA, and uh, and I just um, started working like that. And then when I um, started doing more specialty with with um, the contortion, of course, I got more work. So I mean, it was great because I didn't have any competition. Now there's Circus du Soleil, and there's all kinds of. But at that time, I was like one of a kind. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty rare thing, I think, back then to be like having that kind of a platform, that kind of a spotlight on yourself. So one of the things I wanted to actually ask you about was uh, unrelated to Star Trek is a few other things here. And one of those is I know you did an episode of Wonder Woman. Uh, and that episode, it was called uh, Beauty Parade. So I would love to hear what was your experience in that set? Because I think I, I haven't talked to a ton of folks who have been on Wonder Woman, but that's, that's a fun show to be on, I'd imagine. It was very fun. Lin Linda Carter was really nice. And um, she was very tall, very beautiful. She as tall as you, though. I mean, uh... oh, taller, taller, oh. taller than me. I'm five foot. I thought I was five foot four, but you know, I might have shrunk. Now I'm measured at the doctor's office at five three, and she probably was about five seven. Hmm. And she, um, I guess, she had been a beauty queen, but uh, it was a good experience because they treated us very well. And, of course, I got hired because they wanted me to be, I forget who I was, Betty Sue or Betty Lou or something like that. And they showed me doing dancing and kicking high and doing acrobats. Um, it was no contortion, but it was walkovers and dancing, basically, kicks and doing some jazz movements. And so they kept flipping back to me for the talent part of the beauty contest. I was kind of, I was the only one they showed that was talent, you know. 
so um, that was a fun, that was really a fun um, thing to work on because it wasn't a lot of sitting around. It was eight hours of actually moving and doing, you know, because they kept cutting, then they, they'd cut, and then they'd have me come back and do it again. And so at least I got to move. I, I was always active. I mean, like when I was in Vegas and I was a Copa girl at the Sands, I didn't like, it was so simple because we'd do two shows a night. We introduced whoever was on, Red Skelton worked there, um, Barbara Streisand was there. Um, she was just starting out then and we never even knew who she was and we <laughs> heard her voice when we were backstage and we thought, oh, I forget, she was the opening act for somebody. <laughs> and I said, oh my goodness, listen to that voice. It's you funny know? to think of at any point in history that Barbara Streisand would open for someone, you know? <laughs> oh no, she was the opening act. I mean, wow. this was back, let's see, I was in I was at Disneyland from 62 to 64. I was in Vegas in 1965, 66. Wow. And back in then, in those days, Vegas, all it consisted of was the Strip and downtown. Hmm. And every night, all of the hotels were dark, which meant we didn't have shows. And they would open up one hotel and show movies for all the people to work with. So... It was like a small town atmosphere when I was there. So like as you're coming up in this world of entertainment here, I mean, you're talking about doing live performances in Vegas and you're also now on TV. But I got to ask, you know, as someone who I guess initially was kind of more interested in the stage performing, what did you like better? Or I should add also, did you miss the fact that you didn't have an audience to respond to when you're doing TV shows? I mean, was there one that you preferred over the other? Uh, well, I'll move on because um, what I preferred more was having um, I, you know, I did trade shows. Yeah. I did a lot for 18 years. I performed at trade shows and this was after pretty much after the stage career. And then after the, well, I was still doing TV and movie work while I was doing the trade shows, but the trade shows, I didn't have an agent for that. I was my own agent. I didn't have, um, you know, to pay anybody a commission because they were coming to me directly. And I, um, the trade shows were the best because the audience was right in front of me. Mm, okay. They were out there and there were no lights. And I could interact with the people. I could look at somebody and say, you know, look at this product and you don't have to worry about, you know, getting all tied up in knots when you use this product. You don't have to bend over backwards the directions are really easy and you know so i would i wrote choreographed it it was my whole thing because i wrote choreographed narrated the script on a little stage and um people lined up like i did a show like every 30 minutes huh, wow. so they would start one crowd would leave and another one would come you know and then people would come up and say oh you know shake my hand and so I was more involved with the audience when I did trade shows. So you really but, just like having like no barrier basically between you and the audience. You want that immediate interaction. Right. No barrier, nothing. And uh, I did that for 18 years. So the trade shows were a longer career than <laughs> the stage work or the TV or the, you know, the um, television or movie. 
Well, I do have one other TV show, and I know we're, we're kind of jumping around in the timeline of your life here, but there's one other TV show um, that I've been a big fan of, and that's Family Matters. And I saw your clip, in fact, I saw the episode that you did of Family Matters, uh, which is a really fun episode, and you're basically there where Carl and Urkel basically go into an alternate timeline, and it's a world where Carl is rich, and you are there because you are a living statue. You're a living piece of art that's constantly moving. So right. I, I would love to hear about working on that show. Uh, and also, if you have any memories of Jaleel White or Reginald Bill Johnson. No, because basically on that show, they had me in my trailer. Yeah. And they would just call me out when I need they needed me. And in those days, too, when I did a television show, I would go back to the trailer and study because I was going to college at night. Oh, okay. So, and um, on the television shows and even um, the movie industry, it's a lot of sitting around. And they're doing their thing, you're doing your thing. So um, I would say on all the TV shows, I interacted more with the individuals that were on the show on Wonder Woman. Um, but on like that one, I, they just called me in when they wanted me to be the living statue. And then they would have me go back. One thing I am definitely curious about here, and I'm surprised it's taken me this long to ask you, but I would love to know what your stretching routine was back then. And even today, what you're doing, say, like, what, what kind of routine do you have? What kind of exercises do you do to get your body and also maintain your body to have this elasticity? A lot of stretch. Um, I have somebody... Um, put it online, I forget who it was, it came, I was teaching at, at um, Pierce College, and he came and took pictures of me um, stretching in my routine, and I guess it's on, my son called me and said, Mom, do you know you're all over the internet, the YouTube, whatever, I had no, I had no idea, I don't know who put it on, but um, because I'm of the age that I'm not really tech. I didn't grow up with computer. I didn't grow up tech. So, and to be honest with you, a lot of the things I did, I did to make a living. I mean, it was a job for me. It wasn't something that you thought, oh, this will be a lot of fun. It was a job. My agent would call and I'd say, how much am I going to make? You know, how much are you, how much, what, what are they paying? Because I had a son, I raised my son by myself with what I made performing. So basically, it was a matter of, you know, a lot of actors are like that. You know, it's, 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 it's a business. It's show business, but it's a business like an accounting job or whatever. You get paid for what you produce. So... Um, a lot of it was calling me, telling me this was, well, it was like Star Trek. They, cat, uh, Central Casting called me, told me to show up at, I think it was Paramount or wherever it was, and told me just, you know, you're going there. And it was when I was doing extra work, so 50-some years ago, right? So um, I said, well, what do I get paid? Well, you're going to get specialty pay because they're going to make a special costume for you. But they like, you know, the way you're built. So, therefore, they chose you because, you know, they pretty much glued the costume on me. So, anyway, so, I mean, it was kind of about 
oh good I have work because if you didn't work you didn't get paid and if you didn't get paid guess what you couldn't pay your rent or your telephone bill or buy your groceries Trek Untold will return momentarily Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions if you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves Triple Fiction Productions has you covered Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Armin Schimmelman. And I'm Kitty Swink. 17 years ago, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I didn't know it at the time, but I had a 4% chance of surviving five years. As her husband, I was very scared. But he never let me see that. You are a rock. Thank you. Thank you. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate of just 10%. We want it to be much higher. Much higher. It's 6% better when I was diagnosed, but not high enough. More than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021, and more than 48,000 will die from the disease. Because symptoms are often vague, it can be hard to detect. Like the rest of the world, the Star Trek universe has been struck repeatedly by pancreatic cancer. Not only those of us that work on the show, but our fans around the world as well. It is why we came together with so many others to work with the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocates committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create better outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research and early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support their important mission by donating at pancan.org today. We donated. Won't you do so too? Please, make it so. We now return to Trek Untold. Well, so April, since you just brought up Star Trek, I think we got to go right into it now because uh, there's a lot of questions here about this, and uh, you know, for quite some time too, folks weren't even sure who played this character. So we're going to come back to that. But uh, you know, you just mentioned basically how you got that part for Star Trek, and that was because you essentially got called in because of your talents, right? I got called in because they liked the way I looked. It had nothing to do with contortion. Okay, so just so purely just based on a headshot photo kind of thing. Yeah, well, the headshot they saw my, you know, the way I was built. Because they wanted that shape for the cat. Mm -hmm. Because they basically took a yoke, a velvet piece of material, and just glued it around me. You know, from my neck down over my breasts. So 
So, and then they gave me a pair of silver stockings to put on, and then they basically, the skirt I wore was just a piece of material that they glued together. And how was that outfit to wear? I mean, was it comfortable? Did you feel okay in that? Um, well, yeah, it was, you know, kind of like wearing a glove or something glued on you. A very thin glove. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then they worked on my, you know, the eyes and the, um, the makeup, of course, and the wig. So the front of my hair was, the, my own hair was bangs, but they put a, big, a wig on, you know, a long. I had heard, I think, in another interview that you did that you talked about because kind of how uncomfortable the costume fitting session was. Uh, can you, do you recall that? Oh, yes. I had to stand quite a while while they glued and they pulled and they put it back on. And, you know, and then um, the eyelash, the makeup took a long time because they glued these eyelashes on me that went clear up. And they were kind of uncomfortable. You know, they were heavy. They were heavy on my eyelids. But as I said, I just did what they told me to do, and when they told me to sit, okay, and they told me to walk across the room, okay. I mean, it was that particular job was not Screen Actors Guild; it was Screen Extras Guild. Hmm. So um, it was not at that point. I guess uh, it was when I was going to college, as I said, and trying to study. You know, when I was between shoots or whatever. And we should add, too, for the folks who are watching this video version right now, uh, we're talking about Isis the cat as a human, but right now behind you is your cat hanging out. So we've got a cat visitor with us. Oh, where did, where did, oh yeah, he's, um, that's, that's Claude. C-L-A-W-E-D. Of course. <laughs> and Claude is black. And that was nothing that was intended. <laughs> it just worked out that way today. <laughs> Claude was a stray. And he came out from under the bushes and decided he liked my dog, sniffed my dog. A very unusual cat at a neighbor's house. So I actually inherited Claude. He, he chose me. Huh. And uh, when I did the first Star Trek signing, they said, you should bring Claude to the show. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that to Claude. You know, he would be too, too upsetting to him. He's, he was an outside stray. When I got him, it was quite uh, a coincidence that he's black. It is. So, yeah, well, thank you, Claude, for joining us today. We appreciate you being here, too. See him? Uh, yeah, there he is. He's hanging out with us. <laughs> he's, looking, he's looking out the window. So the episode that you did, which is Assignment Earth, uh, it's basically a backdoor pilot to what was essentially going to be another show by Gene Roddenberry. So, uh, you know, we're mentioning the man that they called the great bird of the galaxy, uh, the great bird of the universe. Uh, did you get to really interact at all with Gene Roddenberry? Did you even meet him? I never met him. I, um, as I said, it was just an extra part. They called me in. They put the costume on. I didn't think anything about it. It was like a split second in my life. I know more about Star Trek now than I ever knew back then. I didn't even watch Star Trek. Now I've watched it. It's a wonderful show. I wish I would have watched it back then, but I never did. I was so busy just trying to, you know, make a living and go to college. So, um, you know, it was quite interesting when when I got a call from Larry Nemnick. And um, he asked me if I played. He said, he told me that they went down, they went into the records and saw the role, the, uh, the casting call. 
and they saw my name. That's how they found out who I was. And um, I just never paid any attention. I had someone call me about five years ago, whatever, and say, you know, they think somebody else did Star Trek. Didn't you do it? And I said, well, yeah, I did. I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> and they said, well, they said, um, they're telling, saying somebody else was was ISIS. And I said, well, what difference does it make, really? I mean, really, what difference does it make? Let them think it's, you know, I, they, well, you should correct it. And I said, I don't even know how to correct it. So um, then they called me. And it's been wonderful because I've gone to about three shows and I've signed my name and the people are so wonderful and genuine and it's really quite nice. Yeah, we got to give a shout out to Larry. He's been a guest on this show as well. Uh, he's done so much for Star Trek and for Star Trek history, and uh, I'm glad he found you because I was going to ask you like how it felt to know that you know for this many years no one knew it was actually you playing this part and there was someone else taking credit for it. So I mean that didn't really bother you though. That, that's kind of interesting to hear. Well, I, she didn't really take credit. I, I met her at uh, a convention, and she said, it, I didn't, it wasn't me. She said, look, she has blue eyes, I have brown eyes. She said, it wasn't me. So it's just the internet basically got it wrong, it sounds like. Exactly, exactly. So, Which happens. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what can you call about, uh, you know, being back on set now? Let's talk about that. Uh, you know, William Shatner is there. Leonard Nimoy is there. Uh, you've also got Robert Lansing as Gary Seven. And uh, in a rare, rare appearance, you got Terry Garr on a Star Trek show. Um, so what right. can you remember? I mean, I, I don't know if you got a chance to really spend much time with him because, again, you were an extra. So it's probably not going to be as heavy duty. Yeah, but no, I didn't really spend. I said hi to Terry. I knew that my agent had um, my agent had represented her years before she got famous. And because Coralie knew uh, Terry Gar's parents, she told me. And she said, you know, then she, of course, went with a bigger agent, whatever. But um, I just, you know, said, hi, and how are you? That's pretty much it. Um, and I can't, it's been so long ago, I don't even remember how um, Bill Shatner got my phone number. But, you know, I ended up going to lunch with him. That's not and a bad thing. Yeah, no, it wasn't, but I was engaged, and I was going to get married in two weeks. That's a different story. <laughs> but I didn't tell him that. And um, But he called me and asked me to go to lunch, and he was so handsome and so polite and nice that I kind of, I did go to lunch with him, and I kind of felt a little guilty because I was engaged, and actually during that whole thing, I was planning a wedding. Well, I would, when I got called to go do Star Trek. And um, so I went, and I did it, and then I met him, and then he asked me to lunch, and then I went to lunch, and I thought, why am I getting married? He's really mute. Maybe I could cancel the marriage. But I, all the invitations were out, you know, so I couldn't really do that. So, But then he did call my house after I was married, asked for me <laughs> and my husband answered the phone because by this time it was only about a, a couple weeks past but after my husband and I got married I got a job to go to like it was directly after two days after our marriage I flew to Hawaii and was performing there for the police association and so my husband was home and he answered the phone and um 
William Shatner said, who's this? And he said, this is her husband. My husband said, who's this? And he said, William Shatner. And so they both hung up. When I got home, my husband said, why is William Shatner calling you? And I said, oh, he probably just wanted to ask me if I could do another job or whatever. <laughs> but um, it was kind of embarrassing. It's definitely embarrassing. I know that back then, but today I don't mean to be horrible, but it's kind of funny to think about it today. Uh, yeah, today it is, but I felt kind of, I mean, after that happened, and I told uh, Larry this when he interviewed me on the, his blog, I was at a restaurant, and this was 50 years later. It was before Larry called me about doing, you know, if I was Isis the cat. We, I went with a bunch of girlfriends to this local restaurant here in Studio City that you go to Happy Hour. It's a wonderful restaurant. Anyway, we um, went to this restaurant, and Bill Shatner walks in and sits at one of the booths. I think he was waiting for his family. And my girlfriend said, Abel, hey, well, didn't you work with me? Look at his William Shatner. I'm going to go talk to him and tell him you're here. I said, please don't. Please don't do that. I said, don't do that. I said, you know, it, it's, if you're a star, you're somebody really, that everybody recognizes, you don't want a bunch of people coming up and talking to you, you know. I said, please don't do that. She said, no, no, I'm going to go do that. So she walked over and started talking to him, and he was, you know, very kind, very nice. I thought, oh, gee. So I walked over, and I said, Bill, I'm April. I know you don't remember me, but I was on one of the episodes. I was the cat. He acted like he remembered me. I said, I just want to apologize to you because I said, I know you don't remember, but after I was on the show, you invited me to lunch. I went to lunch. Then you called the house, and I was married. And I said, I didn't want you to think that I was one of those wanton women. I wasn't married when I went to lunch with you. And he just laughed. He thought it was very funny. So at least I got it. Then I got my girlfriend away from him. I dragged her back to the table. <laughs> so at least there is a conclusion to the, the William Shatner drama, though. So that's good to hear. Exactly. I know you don't want to necessarily talk anything negative about uh, anybody, but I, I heard that on that episode of Star Trek that you did, Terry Garr had like a very terrible experience on it, uh, so much so that she didn't want to even talk about Star Trek or acknowledge that she did Star Trek. So I, I don't um, know if you remember... I don't know if you remember seeing anything or anything like that. Do you remember seeing anything happen on set? No, nothing. Nothing. I don't. I mean, I'm totally innocent. No, don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, had no idea. I didn't even have any idea that that was the case. And just for the sake of historical record keeping here, uh, do you remember how long your shoot was? Were you there for one day or was it a multiple day shoot? Oh, no, I was there only one day. I think okay. it was like an eight-hour day. I think I got paid like 60-some dollars and lunch. <laughs> and that was it. And there's no such thing as a free lunch in Hollywood. No, and I just went and did my job, did what they told me, and came home and continued to, you know, to plan my wedding, whatever. <laughs> well, I think the most important question about Star Trek is, uh, did you and the actual cat, Isis, get along? Did you get a chance to actually meet that little black cat? No, never saw a cat at all. Never? Oh. Wow. No, they did, you know, they shoot separate scenes. And so when I was there, it was pretty much just um, the parts I had with Terry. When I looked at her, she looked at me. 
and it was a pretty easy day, actually. It was a very easy day. Now, I've always wondered, you know, again, this goes back to the mystery of trying to figure out who played that character. Um, but do you know why you were left off of the credits? Is that just because you were an extra and they considered you not part of it? Exactly. I was an extra, and they don't really, um, they don't name extras. They don't, you know, you're not part of the, of the shows I've done where I have an actual part. At the end, you know, they get the credits, and they'll say such and such played such and such. But if you're an extra, you're really pretty much, you're considered atmosphere. I think today they don't even call them extras. I'm not sure because I haven't been working for a long time. But um, I think that now they call them atmosphere. And so, and now the two, years ago, the two unions merged. So now it's Screen Actors Guild and Screen Extras, you know, they've merged together. So that, so it wasn't like any, any bad feelings or that. It was just that you're an extra and that's why you weren't given the credit. Right, right. No, yeah, it was, and that's why I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that Star Trek would become so popular, become like a, you know, a whole thing. Yeah. Because I I went, I did the job, it was over, done, and I left. I got my money, got my check, a chance, pretty much that was it. I mean, that was such a small part of what I did. Yeah. It's kind of fun, though, because Star Trek fans, they're into that kind of thing. I mean, they want to know who everybody is, and so I'm glad that we were able to solve that mystery. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was fun. It's become, actually... I've made more than I would have ever made if I was uh, doing it under Screen Actors Guild. Because, <laughs> see, Screen Actors Guild, you get residuals. Every time they show something with an extra, you don't get residuals. Mm -hmm. You just go, you get your pay one time, and you leave. So um, I've gotten a lot more <laughs> since then because one guy called me and had me sign a bunch of postcards. And I got paid for that. And then I now have an agent for the, um, and you know him. That's how you got a hold of me. Yep. Uh, Head out to Scott Ray. Yeah. First, yeah. And he's really a neat guy. And so now I've gone to England uh, to sign. And uh, that was really fun. And I'm going to be going to Vegas in August to sign so it's uh it's just a new experience and i just love meeting all these different interesting people yeah i'm glad you're into that experience because you know we were talking earlier about kind of removing that barrier between you and the audience and there's really when you go to a convention and when you are a person who's at a convention there is absolutely no barrier you're just there face to face with that person yeah and i like i like reality i like real um you know, you're, you're on the set doing a movie and you're just, you're interacting with the other actors but with no audience. And even as a dancer up on stage, you're not really interacting with the audience because you have these bright lights on you and you're performing and doing your thing, but you're not really interacting with the audience. So last thing about uh, your episode of Star Trek, too, before we move on to a few other questions. Uh, so, you know, this episode was, as we mentioned earlier, a backdoor pilot for what was meant to be Assignment Earth, the show that really never got off the ground. Uh, but I'm curious, I mean, were you supposed to actually be a part of that show? Did they film anything? Did you see any script? Do you remember anything at all from the or I, anything for the future of that show? No, I had didn't even have an idea that it was a pilot. 
Hmm. Nobody told me. I mean, nobody. Well, Larry told me. He said, you know, it was supposed to be a pilot. You would have had a full-time job. And I said, well, yeah. That's kind of what's happened in my career. <laughs> Things are not meant to be, you know. I um, I was on Laugh-In. And Laugh-In, um, they were talking to me about keeping me as I was on it twice. And they were talking about keeping me as a regular on the show. And they canceled the show. So <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, you know. It's so... No, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> it's just funny how that stuff kind of works out, isn't it? How the universe just works. And it's always just about a completely random set of circumstances that can make or break a career. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'd like to ask, you know, we're talking about some of the uh, the TV and the film roles you've had. So uh, just kind of an overall question. What would you say would be the best day you ever had on a set? And what would be the worst day that you ever had on a set? Oh, gosh. Um I've really never had any big worst days. Um, the worst for me was all the sitting around. You know, you have to sit a lot. Um, and then they call you on and you have to all of a sudden get yourself all pumped up again to to go on and do your thing. Um, so really that's the worst part, but no worst days. Um, the best... Uh, I just had so many incredible, wonderful experiences that um, I don't know that I could name one that was the best. I just found a lot of people were very kind and very, I've always had people be very kind and generous and good to me. So I've never really had anything bad. Well, one thing did happen one time that was bad. Um, I was in a commercial for a, um, a company, and I don't even, it was European, and they put me in a box with my legs around my neck, and um, they started swinging the box around, and then these two guys, I don't even know what the commercial was, they dropped me, and I was in the box when they dropped me, and it really hurt me. It hurt my back because my legs were, you know, around my neck while they were doing this. And so I, um, this other gal that was on the set, she was so protective of me. She said, she is hurt. She's not going to get back in that box. You, the, the box fell apart, and they were trying to put the box back together. That was probably the worst thing that ever happened. And... So I called Coralie. I called from the set. I said, it was before I had a cell. I didn't have a cell phone. I had to go out and use one of the phones that was the booth, phone booth. And I told, called Coralie, and she said, you tell them you're done. You're done. And she said, you know, we could sue them. I said, no, 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 no. I'm not hurt that bad. No. So that was probably the worst thing that ever happened. So I kind of uh, asked you about this a little bit earlier, but I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, what you're doing today. And more so, uh, are you still maintaining that same flexibility that you had back when you were doing Star Trek? I mean, uh, are you able to still keep that kind of stuff up? Can you still put your leg behind your head? I can get it kind of. You have to realize I've had two hip replacements and I have a back hip one. Mm, okay. From doing contortion uh, at trade shows for like 28 years. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, 20, 18 years, not 28. 
So it's a lot either way. It's a lot. I can still oh, okay. I can still I don't know if you can see my leg. I can I can still sort of get it up. <laughs> and and I'm um I teach Pilates out of my home now. You know, I am eighty years old. You do so. not look it. I have to tell you, you do not look eighty years old. Thank you. That is not just that's not just pure flattery here. That is the absolute truth. I mean, I know I know your age because I looked up, you know, Wikipedia and all that stuff. But seeing you, I mean, you do not look anywhere near that number. Well, thank you. I am eighty, so you know, and I've had the two hip replacements and the back implant. Can't forget the back implant. No. So. I, I, and now what I do basically is I go ballroom dancing a couple times a week. I go um, ballroom dancing, and I teach uh, several people a day. In my, I, I was teaching six hours a day, uh, six days a week in my studio. You know, my I have a studio in my home with the reformers and the, the EXO chair and all that. But... Um, I'm not uh, teaching as much now. I teach one or two students a day is all, and only five days a week. So, and my granddaughter's here visiting right now, so I have my granddaughter here, and so I'm very busy. I have a a very good group of of lady friends. My husband unfortunately passed away. Um, if, Two thousand fifteen in December, so um, maybe seven years or six years. This whatever the math is, this December. So I'm now just doing my thing with my girlfriends. And based on kind of what you've said during this interview, a lot of which was you know that you really didn't like being on set, having to wait. You just kind of wanted to go. It, it sounds like you know being active has been such a very important part of who you are and your lifestyle. And is that is that kind of maybe part of the reason why you still look this amazing at, at this age? Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thank you. I am active. I have to be active. It's like when I was working at the Sands as a Copa girl. We just walked around and worked. You know, we did like a little. Step ball change, step ball change, kick, whatever. And that was it. So then I went to work with the Rudis Acrobats at the Dunes in Vegas. We had to work three shows a night. And I only made $2 more a week. And we were working. I went down from 100 and probably I was 121. I went down to 98 pounds working for Rudis, my, my dress size went down to a zero. I got so skinny because it was like acrobats across the floor. We did a 20-minute can-can. While I was working there, I got water on my knees. And I thought, you know, I'm pretty stupid that I'm working this hard for only $2 for, you know, a week. But um, I learned from it. And... Um, there's a lot in life that we have to, as we get older, try to learn. Patience is one of mine because I want to do things right now. I'm, I'm just, I'm active. As I said, my granddaughter went to a ballroom dance with me this morning. We went, and she went with me, and she's sitting on the chair yawning. I think I'm wearing my my seven year old granddaughter out. <laughs> oh, that's pretty amazing to say. I mean, that's yeah. I'm wearing her out. Like that, that sounds like something that'd be impossible to do. It's a seven-year-old girl. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. 
So, you know, I'm glad you kind of also brought up uh, things that you're learning, especially now, even in this older age, because uh, that's one of the questions I like to ask here on the show is, uh, you know, April, kind of looking at your life as a whole, what would you say would be the most important piece of advice that someone ever said to you, whether it would be about life or performing? Do you remember like one piece of advice that has stuck with you to this day that you always use and think about? I use a lot of things, but um, as I said, I'm working on patience, and I think it's very important not to be judgmental. We're all individuals, and when we look at someone who, you know, I grew up in an age where if you had a tattoo, you were really not a very good person. But, I mean, that has nothing to do. One time I was on set and I worked with this guy. He had tattoos all over his face. He had them on his face. He was there because of that. He got the job. Because he had all these tattoos and rings, I mean, he had rings in his eyebrows, rings in, like these these safety pins through his forehead. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. At first I thought, oh, my God, that guy, oh, jeez. But then I got to talking to him, and I thought, he was so smart. He'd been, he had like two master's degrees, and he was, and I thought, you know, you can't go by appearance. You can't go by what somebody looks like. You can't be judgmental. So that's been what uh, I pretty much am getting over that. You know, I'm I'm good at that. But um, because I'm always so active, I want to do everything now. Um, I'm still working on patience. But my mother taught me um, one thing to cook. If you lose something, it never it didn't fall off the end of the earth. You will find it. And if a situation looks bad, you look at the situation, it's a learning curve, you're going to learn from it, so it becomes a good experience. So really nothing is bad. And uh, we all, we're, life is individual, we always, um, we always experience things differently. We can have, you could have the same experience I had. And for you, you might get something else out of it than I get out. You know, we talk about uh, at any age, at any age, learning to change. I mean, really learning to change and to be patient, it requires flexibility. And that is something that you do excel at. So, uh, you know, you're basically taking that physical aspect and now putting it to the mental aspect. Right. My body was always very flexible. And so, um, as I said, you know, it. you're right. The body is flexible. Now I have to make, as I'm maturing i'm becoming more youthfully mature i have to to make my body flexible too that's a good lesson to learn and always learn i'm always trying to uh, take classes and learn right now i'm taking an art class so well good luck <laughs> thank you all right so april you know last thing today and i feel like we've already kind of discussed this during this interview but i'd love to hear what is the best thing for you about being a part of the star trek universe well, actually, I'm enjoying it more today than I did the day that I did it because I didn't realize how important uh, Star Trek was and I didn't understand really the whole philosophy of Star Trek. So I really was so naive and innocent about, naive, maybe, about knowing what it was about. I just went, had to put the costume on me, did the job, got my money which I'm sorry that I didn't really 
know at the time how wonderful it was. Well, I'm glad that we were able to find you. I'm glad Larry did all that hard work and discovered it was you all along and that you are now truly a part of the Star Trek family, which I, you should have been for, for so many years beforehand. So you're here now. That's what matters. Right. A lot of life went by. But we got you now, and we'll see you at more conventions, which is always great to hear. And, and I love hearing that you're loving that, too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, April, thank you again so much for chatting with us, telling us a little bit about your life, a little bit about your time on Star Trek. And also, uh, again, shout out to Claude for joining us here today, too. I'm glad we, we are cat approved on this episode. You are. Is he still here? He's still hanging out. Yep. <laughs> and we're now joined by special guest Claude on camera. There he is. Wow. There's, there's Claude. So we got two black cats right now in this episode. Right. <laughs> well, April, thank you so much. It's been lovely. Uh, it's great to meet you, and hopefully we get to see you at a Star Trek convention sometime soon. Yes, well, thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold, and thank you for checking it out. One more time, if you're not following us on social media, please do so by checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces, on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Special thanks to Scott Ray for providing us with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or convention appearance, email scott at scottray67 at aol.com. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.